Hi, I'm Haley. And I'm Dalton. Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. We're so excited to have Alexandra Phillips this week. But first, make sure you follow us on social media. On Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, we are at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you want to send us any comments or questions, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. This week, we have Alexandra Phillips. She's a recently elected member of the European Parliament, representing Southeast England. She's a member of the Brexit Party and formerly top staffer to Nigel Farage. All right, Alexandra Phillips, thank you so much for being on the pod this week. You were elected to the European Parliament very recently, in May of this year. What was that process like, and how were you the second candidate on the Brexit Party list? Um, okay, so essentially, do you know that the, the mystification of how you end up where in certain regions is that was, that's, that's all down to the party. I'm actually from the southwest, um, and I wanted to stand in the southwest. But they had such great candidates in the southwest, people that they just wanted to hold on to, and they moved people around based on what they thought they needed to do in terms of representation. And at the last minute, I was in the southwest, and Anne Widdicombe, who's a veteran UK politician, turned around and said she wanted to stand for the Brexit Party, and she's from Bath. So Nigel decided that, do you know what, because he was going to be away as party leader and not being able to do much campaigning and media in the southeast region, which is one of the biggest, he decided that the second in command there when he's absent should be his former right-hand woman, me. So I'd love to say it's because I've got these long, deep connections with the southeast of England, but that wouldn't strictly be true. But your job as an MEP is less directly representative as you would be if you're a local councillor or local MP. It's more on the, the bigger border issues and of course we want to leave the European Parliament. Um, so that's how I selected. And um, the second half of the question I think is, you know, how did that go? I mean, the interesting thing is, I didn't even think there was going to be European elections. Nobody thought there was going to be European elections. This went right down to the wire. We had the first extension after May the 29th for, I think it was a month to April. And then there was a second extension. By that point, we had to have European elections. And actually, my party was the only party ready for this because Nigel's almost like um, a fortune teller when it comes to politics. He's so adept at reading the situation. He had created this party. And here's an interesting factoid for you. I was supposed to be the head of the director of communications for the party because that's what I've always done. I've always been a political spin doctor. But I happened to be at an EU event. This is karma in action. The EU ball, no less, in Brussels one night. And I was wearing my ridiculously high heels on the notoriously cobbled streets. And I fell over and I snapped my ankle so badly. I needed emergency surgery, plates put in. I couldn't walk for three months. So I couldn't do the job as the director of communications of this new party. And essentially, that is how I ended up being a candidate. And I think I've sort of explained how it ended up being the Southeast. So I'd like to give you a more noble story about that. But, um, but there isn't one. So... Once you were decided to be the candidate, what was the campaign process like for you? How was it to, to run for that office? Um, to be honest, it, it's very different campaigning in a European election to a domestic election because you're not running on a ticket of certain policies you're going to bring forward, especially if you're a Eurosceptic. It's not like we were saying, as a you know willing and, 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 and enthusiastic member of the European Union, we want the European Union to do X, Y and Z, that the campaign was we don't even want to be elected. We wish we weren't doing this. Um, and it's a, it's a vote that works on proportional representation, not first past the post. And it's a, it's a list system as well. So you don't campaign as yourself. You don't campaign as Nigel Farage or Alexandra Phillips. You campaign just as the Brexit party. And then depending on how many votes each party gets, the system's actually called De Hunt. 
um, depending how many votes each party gets, they run through the list. So you're listed one to six candidates in each region. It might be one to ten. One to six, I think, is what we ran, assuming that that's the max we could get. And then as the votes come in, you get your first one through, you get your second one through, you get your third one through. And here's another little delight. There actually happens to be another MEP called Alexandra Phillips in the Southeast uh, for the Green Party. You couldn't find two people who have, with more diverse political opinions. Um, and on the night that the BBC ran the results, Nigel Farage got elected and then I got elected, Alexandra Phillips. And Alexandra Phillips came up again straight after me. There was an outcry on Twitter of people going, ah, the BBC have messed up their graphics. Um, but like I said, that's because you don't necessarily campaign as an individual person in a constituency that you're familiar with. It's more sort of representative and based on your, your party's kudos. So you had a lot of experience in journalism before you ran. Did you ever anticipate being on the other side of the camera as an elected official? No. Never? <laughs> no. No. In fact, it was um, while I was working as a journalist, I wasn't political particularly. When I was at university, I studied philosophy and literature. And I liked partying and boys, and I didn't really engage with politics much. Um, I've, I've always been interested in it, and I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. And it just so happened when I started my career as a journalist, one of the first things I did when I was still at journalism school, postgraduate, um, was I was sent out by as um, moonlighting for a commercial television station. And they were short of a few cameras, so I borrowed one from journalism school to go and cover the minor political parties during the Welsh Assembly election campaign of 2007. And one of those minor political parties was UKIP and Farage was the leader. So we actually met, get this, we met in the back of a pink Cadillac with a guy called Di Llewellyn, who was related somehow to Princess Diana, an old sot, some sort of aristocracy guy who died of probably cirrhosis of the liver or something. Um, we met in the back of a Cadillac, drinking champagne straight from the bottle, while Nigel held up a megaphone and was going around the streets of Cardiff yelling about post offices. And, and, and therein became this peculiar friendship where Nigel said to me, come and work for me. But I was training to be a journalist at the time and said, the timing's not right for me. I want to pursue this career. Um, I went to work for the BBC, which is, it, it, it still is infested with some of the most Orwellian group think I've ever seen in any institution. And something about their, uh, the, the sort of position and the opinion of majority of the newsroom staff on UKIP and on, on the idea of Euroscepticism, this is before Brexit became a thing, I just thought so at odds with what I'd seen when I was covering these people who had explained to me that what they wanted was the nation's independence. And I already had preformed ideas about reasons why the EU was bad having worked as a journalist, a student journalist really, in, um, in Ghana, where the EU were doing a free trade agreement with ECOWAS and were, were really treating Ghana very unfairly that it just sort of crystallised my position of thinking, no, something's not right here. And actually the establishment media is, is not helping. It's not listening to people and it's not reflecting the true will of society and somehow is bound up in what I sense to be a degree of propaganda. And then it just so happened that the European elections 2009 happened and I was, I'd gone off to work in the northeast of England as a journalist and had come back to work for BBC Wales back at the Beeb. And um, I was covering the European election campaign of 2009. And guess who I was sent with my camera to cover? Yep, Nigel Farage. So we met for a second time. And by this point, my attitudes towards becoming a journalist and, and having a career in broadcast had shifted dramatically. And when he said for a second time, come on, I've asked you before, come and work for me. I said, yes.
Hmm. So off of that, you've worked closely with him for a while now with, with Nigel Farage. Are there any issues with which you disagree or are there any memorable moments that you've experienced with him or what's kind of your stories from that experience? Oh my gosh, do you have like a whole week? Um, <laughs> do we disagree on things all the time? We, especially in 2015, we fought tooth and nail during the general election campaign. There's people who are very close to each other and can fight tooth and nail. He had started um, being uh, having a close relationship with Steve Bannon during this period. And his position during the 2015 general election campaign was very skeptical of media. Whereas someone who was a journalist, and despite me not liking my time at the BBC, I loved my previous journalism experience, always, and I still maintain this, I still maintain that certainly in the UK, doing mainstream media is the most important thing in a political campaign, because it provides an endorsement, a corroboration of your standpoint, and you can reach hundreds of thousands of people, whereas knocking on doors, you just can't. And we used to fight about this all the time, and I'd be getting loads of bids coming in about, can Nigel be on this TV program, this TV program? And when I first started working for Nigel, when he wasn't well known, I pushed him onto so many things that UKIP's position, his position, hugely escalated. And, you know, it became this phenomenal success, an unprecedented political success. Um, and 2015, he started re re retreating from that position and started to kind of attack the media a bit and came across as rather prickly. And we used to argue about that to the point that I remember I had an in-tray on my desk of emails that I'd printed out of all the media bids that I thought he should do. And he said, why should I do any of it? Why should I do any of it? And I can remember holding my in-tray and shaking it over his head till it rained down on him and said, be your own effing PR person then. <laughs> Stormed out, went and sat at my other desk. I'd been in his office, went and sat at my other desk like this. And he just slipped up behind me and said, do you want to go to the pub? <laughs> I was like, okay. But no, there's loads of times. We used to go on tour. Um, public meetings have always been close to his heart. He still does them all the time now with the Brexit party. And we used to go on tours around the country and we had a weird fleet of UKIP branded vehicles. There was this double-decker bus that broke down every five seconds. And there was this bloody godforsaken London taxi. And I don't know if you know what those hackney carriages look like, the traditional London taxis, but they're from some sort of previous era of history. And it was bright purple and yellow, two colours that should never been seen together. And somehow, despite being the PR person, everyone else had dropped out of the tour and I was left with driving the bloody taxi across the country. And it's an automatic and it had this sort of weird alarm that went off the whole way. And anyway, before he went, Nigel was um, going with his security team in their cars and other people. And there was no one, I mean, I normally would be in the back of that car with him, but there was no one to drive this horrible vehicle. And um, over the course of, you know, two weeks, it had been filled with newspaper bits and bobs, and he smokes a lot all the time in the back of the car. And, and I lost my temper, and I just said, I'm not driving that thing, it looks like a moving dustbin. <laughs> and um, yet another night of, um, you know, being relatively heavy on the booze. And I came down the next day, and I, I was, the security guy was saying, I said, oh my God, thank you, James, thank you, Smudge, you've cleaned the car. And he, I just heard this voice behind me saying, I got up at 5am to do that for you. <laughs> uh, and it was Nigel. Um, I can also tell you that, you know, when we were doing these tours, it, always you'd have press calls in pubs and Nigel would have the picture with the pint and then we'd go out and there'd be a, an event meeting members and having dinner with them and then people would want to have drinks afterwards. And I can remember saying to Nigel, I can't keep up with you. You know, we're sleeping like four hours a night. We'd be doing media and, and, and events late into the night and then getting up at about five in the morning to get to new studios by six. 
and he can manage on about five hours sleep and I just can't and he's got a liver made from lord knows what probably a 3d printer I don't know um and I'm just a normal feeble human being and I said I just can't do this and we'd arrived in Swansea and we're staying at um, a premier inn and there's a pub attached to it and he said okay we've got to go and meet I've got to go meet some of the membership because you know they, they queued for hours to come and see me speak and and he, he actually genuinely this guy has no phone numbers in his phone by the way he remembers everybody's 11 digit phone number off by heart and remembers everybody's name even if he's met them just once at a rally and remembers their family details it's insane it, it, it's peculiar anyway so he's always been a big believer in connecting with the public and remembering people and we ended up going back to the pub and I and, and everyone had cleared out and I said right and he said you can get a lion it was 11 o'clock at night and he said you can get a lion we don't have to be up till six in the morning I was like seven hours that's amazing because our first gig wasn't until half past seven and he said let's just have one drink just one drink before bed and I was like oh go on then so he went up to the bar before they you know they do in Britain ring the bell for last orders and I he went up to the bar and I heard ding 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 and I thought yes and so I saw him smirking, coming back with two bottles of wine in his hand. <laughs> we sat down, he opened them. And I was like, oh my God, I'm knackered. And he said, we've done really well today. We've barely drunk anything. And I was like, yeah, bottle of wine each. We're really turning the corner. <laughs> so no, so those, those, the years on the road with him, I could tell you gazillions of stories, so many fun things. Um, he's a force of nature, uh, but he's exhausting to be around because he can just his capacity, his energy levels, his enthusiasm, his memory, his no need for sleep and his um, liver of iron uh, are just things that are very hard to keep up with. You have to be a pretty exceptional and robust human being to do it. Wow, so those are some incredible stories and obviously your main policy goal working together uh, is to be in the Brexit party. And can you tell us a little bit about why you believe in Brexit so strongly? Um, it comes down to bare basic principles, which is, first of all, um, okay, so I always say democracy in a relationship is hard between two people. What TV program are you going to watch? What takeaway are you going to get? Where should you go at the weekend? Whatever. Even between two people, it can be difficult. The broader you have to spread it, it's a bit like butter. Imagine like the same portion of butter on a piece of toast that's, you know, a mile wide and it's very thin. And democracy is the same. The broader you have to spread it, the thinner it becomes, the less voice the average citizen has, the less represented they are. And like I said earlier, I actually became a Eurosceptic living and working in Africa when I had this view that the EU was sort of relatively innocuous and a force for good, benign and benevolent. And it was only when I was living and working in Africa when the, the the EU were trying to sign a free trade arrangement with the economic community of the West African states. It was the top news story in Ghana because it was all about stripping tariffs on raw products, but tariffs were going to be still put on produced products, which essentially means that Africans don't get to sell things that they've made. They can only essentially give away their natural resources to multinational companies. And there was such vibrant and informed debate in Africa about this, and I saw this different perspective of the EU that, that just shaped me forever, that really changed my view. Um, and then when I came back, I just felt more, what then triggered me, to use a very millennial word, um, was then seeing the sort of scorn and the chiding and the chastising of Brexiteers by people in the media. 
And I really realise that th this comes down to a very fundamental question of if you support Remain, you support Europe becoming a federal bloc, the United States of Europe, because that is the direction of travel and has been for a very long time since Jacques Dehors. And there's no secret that that is the EU's end goal. And if you support Brexit, you actually think that the nation state is a better model and it far better delivers on democracies and protects freedoms and protects um, heteronomy of nation states, not sort of making everybody one big homogenized block with a uniculture and uni policy, but saying Finland can be Finland and Poland can be Poland and France can be France. And actually that variety is something to be celebrated. And actually breaking down democracy via direct democracy, referenda, so on and so forth is possibly a very good model. And we live in a globalized society, a more informed society, a technologically adept society. So finally we actually live and where the franchise is far greater than it ever was for my predecessors, the suffragettes, for example. So we actually live in an era where there are means and mechanisms by which democracy can finally be its true meaning of the word, power of the people, and come from the grassroots up. And Brexit represents an opportunity to start delivering on a new model of politics. And I think it's, I actually think it's the future. People like to think that it's backwards looking. I actually think it's very forwards facing. So to go off of that, just this morning, uh, Boris Johnson's Brexit plan was rejected by the European Parliament. Um, as an MEP, kind of what is your next step forward? Well, I've been stuck being an MEP, it seems, because the plan's <laughs> been rejected. So I don't think I'm going to be an unemployed on the 31st of October. Um, no, look, my job as an MEP might not be the same as an MEP for, say, the Liberal Democrats or the Labour Party, who are ardent Europhiles, because I don't want to sit in committees and pretend I'm doing something. I mean, MEPs have no legislative making power. We, you, it's, it's impossible almost to even get 60 seconds of speaking time on the monthly basis in which Parliament sits in a completely different city to, to Brussels. It's a farce, the whole thing. And so you sometimes see other MEPs running around with portfolios under their arm, cock of the walk, thinking they're doing something really important when it, it, it's, it's a sham. And it's all about, you know, sound bites on Twitter to make it look like they're doing something important while pocketing a huge load of money. Um, so... My next step as a Brexit Party MEP is using my elected position, uh, using the fact that I can do things like come over to America and speak to you guys and do American media and doing a shed load of UK media to keep the messaging alive, keep the campaign alive and keep shining a spotlight on what's going on and keep the faith. Because it's been three years now and people who voted for our country to be self-determining are, are, are being ignored and not just ignored, they're being spat at, milkshakes are being thrown at them. They're being insulted in the worst possible ways just to have the audacity to say that they want our country to be the sole master of its own destiny. And you can imagine that these people are going to feel disenchanted because essentially they've been disenfranchised. So you need to have someone who can go out and not look like the standard Brexiteer who you'd be led to believe they're always white middle-aged men um, of low intelligence. You need someone who will also go out and bat for young people and have some energy and enthusiasm and be able to communicate, which was always my job, um, the positives of Brexit and actually remind people that this isn't a crisis. Brexit is a world of opportunity and something that I want more people to reach out for and grasp and think, oh my gosh, the next generation especially, if we get to win this fight, people the same age as you guys in the UK, the next leaders, 
will be the sole authors of my country's destiny. They will not have to go cap in hand kowtowing to Brussels or have some unelected executive deciding what happens in their country, but they get to shape their own destinies. And that's what I want for my children. And that's what I want for their children. I don't have children, by the way, but if I do, that's what I want for them. And I think that's what that's how I see my role as an MEP. It's it's kind of almost doing what I did before, advising other people how to do it, and actually putting my head above the parapets and being the harbinger of um, positivity myself. So do you share any of the concerns that have been mentioned in the media about the economic warnings against a no-deal Brexit? No. All right. <laughs> makes sense. All right. So I won't even give sucker to them by explaining further. Just no. <laughs> so finally, as a pro-Brexit member of the European Parliament, what is it like advocating for the abolition of the very seat that you hold? Fun. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, but you know what's so interesting? Okay, so the European Parliament is actually a fairly sterile and boring place. There's not much humour there. There's, um, like I said, that MEPs don't really have a proper job. And most of the time you're in chamber in the hemicycle with your one minute speech. It's empty. The MEPs just rush, rush in there to press all these buttons and vote and then rush out. And most of the time it's empty. If you don't vote, you don't get paid. But weirdly, our little family of Brexiteers, we're the biggest party in the European Parliament of any nation, 29 of us, um, we turn up for every debate. And not only that, we make our point, and if someone over the chamber says something different, we drum the table and we bellow. And you can see some of them slightly smirking and enjoying it, because we're bringing a little bit of UK politics flavour into an otherwise dull institution. But... Interestingly, MEPs from other countries, whatever their political position, are always very welcoming. And, you know, you, you sit in chamber and we shout at them a little bit, bringing some commons attitude to the place. Um, and then you see them in the bars or the coffee shops after and you shake hands or you might even have a drink together. But that, that, uh, that hospitality comes crashing down when I see a Labour MEP or a Lib Dem MEP, not from my side, I'm one of the happiest, most positive, smiley, welcoming, conversational people that you'll meet. And as a true liberal, um, I strongly believe in people have a right to their own political opinion. If they're federalists, they're federalists. So be it. There are people who also believe that, which is why they have democratically elected positions in that institution. But I'm afraid that that is not necessarily a sentiment that's often returned. And you often find, I mean, I've, I've been on the receiving end of many a side eye and a death stare, um, and even a very personal attack under parliamentary privilege in the chamber itself. So um, by and large, it's a lot of fun and relationships between uh, all MEPs and all walks of life tends to be very positive. But Brexit in my own country has led to a real bitterness, especially coming from those who lost that referendum towards people like me, who are going to be putting long-serving MEPs who really don't have to do that much work and get paid a lot of money and have this sort of fake sense of status. Um, they're going to end up with P45s. I don't know what the American equivalent is, the unemployment form. You take down the job centre. They're going to end up with P45s and just go back to being nothings in the UK. And believe me, they resent me for that. All right, so we have a final segment we like to do here on Fly on the Wall. It's called the lightning round. <laughs> so you've worked across the world in places including China, India, and Africa. If you could visit anywhere, where would it be? Oh, that's 
really difficult. I've got so many places. I really have this thing at the moment for going to Greece because I studied philosophy. I've not been there and my gosh, it looks amazing. Um, Iceland, I want to see the Northern Lights. Malawi, I've got this big crush on the idea of going to Malawi. They've got a great music festival there. I, I could go on and on and on. I'm, I'm just an intrepid traveller. But at the moment, somehow just about is Greece currently. So you traveled across the pond to be with us here in the States. What's your favorite American food or restaurant? Ooh, interesting. Favorite American food. See, I quite like your dirty, nasty, calorific food products. It's kind of up my street. I, okay, no, 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 I've got it. I've got it. Okay, so I kind of think of it as British food because I, I got into it with my granddad from the wartime era. Um, but there's nothing I like more, especially when drunk, than just me sitting down on the sofa with my cat, taking a fork, opening, peeling back slowly <laughs> that delicious metal lid on a jellified salty, sweet, succulent slab of Spam. <laughs> I was not expecting that not at all. Not expecting that. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's great. Um, lastly, what's something that you think us in America should adopt from the UK? Spelling. <laughs> and grammar. And can you just stop saying off of? It just sounds clunky. It's not, it's not right. And it sounds stupid. Saying what? Off of. Can you take something off of the table off or that, that person off of the television? Off of. No, it just, it, no, when I hear that, it just, uh, oh, it's grim. No, it's just, it's not right. I mean, the spelling thing is, is hard enough. Your obsession with the letter Z is just perverse. But um, I really have to draw the line off of. So the letter Z? Oh, see, <laughs> there you are. Exactly. Um, exactly. In there. Um, so no, I, I, I wish you would just, you know, not slaughter the English language. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that I want to take from you guys. And, and the one thing especially I wish that we had as Brits more um, is just you are the warmest, most wonderful, engaging people. And coming here is so great because I've never seen human beings show such enthusiasm towards anything. You go into bar like, oh my God, you're British. Wow. <laughs> I had a great day. It's just like you can't help but smile. I mean, you guys have so much to be proud of. You've got a wonderful country. Um, you are so important in the world. And I just can't wait for my country to be free. Because let's be fair, we're cousins, right? The, the Europeans don't really share our sense of humor. You guys have a bit of a way to go when it comes to sarcasm. I found out that to understand sarcasm, you have to do intonation in America. You can't be like, oh, it's really hot today, isn't it, when it's pouring down rain? Because you'll be like... Um, Oh no, it's actually for this time. You have to go, oh my God, it's hot today. You know, you have to do something to, to spell it out that you're being sarcastic. But other than that, we're basically, you know, brothers and sisters. And I just think it's ludicrous that as two nations, we're not doing things together and, and, and closely together, especially trading. And I would love to see a situation where there's freedom of movement and free trade and almost the European model, but between um, Canada, America, UK, New Zealand, Australia, and let's rock this place via the Anglosphere. Um, so fingers crossed Brexit will happen and I will get to come over here all the time and um, hopefully not have my spelling and grammar too corrupted. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alison. It was great to talk to you. I talk a lot, so I'm sorry for that, and I hope I haven't sent the listeners to sleep. <laughs> thank you again to Alexandra Phillips for joining us on this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. If you like what you heard today, make sure you tune in every Sunday for a new episode. 
And make sure you follow us on social media. We are at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can also email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next week.